Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Inside Sources. Behind-the-scenes experience in Washington and around the world. Here's the opinion page editor of the Deseret News, Boyd Matheson, on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Inside Sources. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Great to be with you on KSL News Radio today. Hope you're having a fantastic Tuesday. And we're going to dive right in today. There's a, a lot of things going on uh, around the planet, uh, including the president kicking off his uh, official 2020 campaign. Uh, that will come up later tonight in Orlando. So we'll keep our eye on that. A uh, host of other things going on. Tensions in the Middle East continue to rise uh, and a few challenges there as well. Uh, but I want to jump in as we were talking to Maria earlier this hour. Uh, KSL News Radio has been uh, focused on uh, Faith Under Fire, a special series as part of our uh, ABC uh, partners. And we're going to take that just a, a one step deeper today as I was uh, thinking through how we could best contribute to this this focus on Faith Under Fire and uh, these uh, wonderful segments. If you haven't heard them, you can go on to uh, KSL radio uh, on the app uh, and check those out. But uh, talking about a lot of the different uh, things that have happened over the last few years, uh, we've had shootings in uh, a uh, synagogue in Pittsburgh. We've had uh, shootings at uh, Christian churches in North Carolina and in Texas and in other places around the world. And uh, I had the opportunity uh, just about a month or so ago uh, to be down in New Zealand. It was uh, part of the uh, South Pacific ministry tour. Uh, and uh, President Russell M. Nelson of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had uh, scheduled a meeting with the imams uh, from the two uh, mosques that were uh, shot up and attacked uh, back in March of this year. And it was a fascinating experience to to see and to be that close. Uh, these are folks who were in the mosques uh, on that uh, awful day. And so I wanted to provide some perspective of of what that's like to go through, and then what comes out the other side, and, and how do we deal with these tragedies, and how do we make sure that faith under fire uh, moves into the public square in a different way? And so that's what we're going to talk about for uh, up until 1 o'clock today. So don't don't go anywhere. We've got some great sound for you. We'll also have Kelsey Dallas, a religion reporter from the Deseret News, will be joining us uh, coming up here in about uh, 10 minutes. Uh, so we'll break that down just a little bit further. So, again, let me tee this up a, a little bit. As I mentioned, President uh, Russell M. Nelson 
uh, president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, held a meeting, uh, not just with the leaders from the two mosques in uh, Christ Church, New Zealand, uh, but also other uh, Muslim leaders from around New Zealand uh, had all come together uh, for just a, a great little bit of interaction and, and dialogue. Uh, and as was mentioned, they uh, they did uh, make a contribution to each of the mosques in their rebuilding effort. Uh, but even more important than that was really the connection with the community and the members who lived in those areas, reaching out and, and ministering and serving uh, those who had been impacted by this awful tragedy. Uh, so I want I want to take you back to that day. Here is a, a portion of my interview. Uh, I was sort of the pool reporter for this particular one. We traded off with our, our colleagues at the Deseret News, the Church News, and KSL uh, as to who would ask the questions. Uh, and it just happened to be my turn uh, to be able to ask the questions, but we we asked uh, what that day was like, uh, and this is uh, one of the leaders uh, from the mosque who was actually shot uh, in the collarbone. Uh, but listen to this description of of what took place that day in the mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand. There was a partition wall that had uh, the ladies were praying behind the partition wall. So I just asked everyone to get down and not to come out of that wall. Um, after making everyone da- getting down, I thought I'll just uh, go and see what way I can rescue them out. So the moment I was out to see a way, I saw the person right in front of me and he straight away shot me on my right collarbone. Uh, I was in the mosque lying, struggling for my life. Okay, so again, just uh, I just can't imagine, you know, being in a house of worship, being in the middle of prayer, uh, and then to hear gunshots, uh, to try to, you know, think, okay, I've got, I've got to help get these women and children out of the mosque, uh, and then to be face to face with a shooter. Uh, and and take that bullet. And so that, uh, again, just gives you some sense of, of what was going on in there. Um, but there's also so, some interesting things that that came out of the, the backside of that. Obviously, losing 51 lives uh, was just horrific and tragic to these two communities, uh, these two Muslim communities in New Zealand. Um, but I was amazed at their ability to transcend that moment and to to keep pushing everything forward. Here's what they had to say. We got such a good support from every person in the New Zealand, almost every person. That made us feel safe again. And, you know, that make us feel secure and come out of our houses. All right. So, uh, again, really, uh, ama- I was so amazed at, uh, at each of the, the Muslim leaders who, who spoke with us. Uh, their ability to say, "Wow, you know, it was this awful tragedy. We we lost brothers and sisters in this uh, in this attack." But then they immediately pivoted and said, "It was so amazing that the the country came together, the community came together, the world came together." Uh, and he said, "That's what gave them hope to actually come back into the public square." Uh, and I thought that was an interesting way to uh, to frame that, and that he did uh, hope that out of this tragedy that there would be an increase of faith, that there would be an increase of understanding uh, across the differences. And, and that's really what we have to look at as, as we look at faith under fire. Uh, we do have to be able to bring faith into the public square. Uh, so it's not just about making sure we don't have uh, violent 
angry people going into churches and synagogues and mosques uh, and inflicting damage and, and killing people. But we also have to be able to have the freedom to bring faith into the public square to solve a host of things, to, not only to understand one another, but to solve real societal problems. Uh, I, I love to listen to the uh, to the words of uh, Rabbi Soloviechek, uh, who is just uh, one of the great speakers I've ever heard. And he talks about this importance of bringing faith into the public square from a Jewish perspective. Listen to this. Unlike Sabbath candles, which are intended to illumine the Jewish home, the Hanukkah lamps are placed in the window to be seen by the public Jew and non-Jew alike. And originally in Talmudic times and in Jerusalem today, Hanukkah lights were kindled not inside but outside the door of Jewish homes, right outside the door. And the verse in Proverbs allows us to understand the lesson of this ritual. The soul of man is the candle of God. Lighting candles outside the doors of our homes expresses that when people of faith leave their homes and enter the world, they take their beliefs and their religious identity with them. They do not check their beliefs at the door when they enter the public square. Their souls, the candle within each person, illuminates their path wherever they may lead. And this understanding of faith and of its role in society is deeply American. All right, so that's uh, Rabbi Soloviechek. And again, I love that idea of the menorah being lit outside the door uh, because you do not check your faith at the door when you go into the public square. And I think that's important both from this uh, concept that we've been talking about all week this week on KSL News Radio on Faith Under Fire, uh, that we do need to have that understanding. We do need to transcend the hate and the bigotry uh, and the, the prejudice and persecution that have gone on in religious communities uh, but this is also about coming together in a different way of being able to take our faith into the public square and uh, solve real societal issues. Uh, when we come back, we're going to be joined by one of my favorite religion reporters in the land, Kelsey Dallas from the Deseret News, will join us to break down what does it mean to take faith into the public square? Why does it matter? Why is it important? Don't go anywhere. Stay with us on KSL News Radio. We'll be right back. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Hope you're having a fantastic Tuesday. Thanks for joining us on Inside Sources. I am Boyd Matheson, opinion editor at the Deseret News. Great to be with you. We're going to continue our discussion. If you missed the first segment, you're definitely going to want to go on the app and uh, pick up the podcast on this one. Uh, we shared a little bit of my interview with uh, some of the leaders, the imams uh, who were in the mosque. Uh, that uh, awful day down in New Zealand back in March, 51 killed. But uh, KSL has been focused all week this week and will continue uh, a, a series on faith under fire and looking at uh, different shootings and attacks that have taken place in synagogues and mosques and Christian churches uh, around the country and around the world. Uh, and as we've been going through that, I, I wanted to bring in Kelsey Dallas, uh, who's part of the in-depth team of religion writer for the Deseret News, uh, and one of the great minds when it comes to religious freedom, religious liberty. Uh, so, Kelsey, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, I want to. We were both in Japan a few weeks <laughs> ago uh, for the G20 Interfaith Forum, and, and that was an interesting experience in that you had all of these religious leaders from around the world and some political uh, leaders as well coming together to figure out how religions can bridge their divide in terms of doctrines mm -hmm. and come together to solve problems and, and do some good things. 
Um, but I want to take that one step further and look at uh, how does it re- how does it uh, take place in terms of the religious freedom component to it. We just listened to Rabbi Soloviechek uh, eloquently describe how we need to be able to take faith mm-hmm. with us, take whatever our faith is or isn't, take that with us into the public square. Mm-hmm. You've been uh, covering this in depth for a long time. Uh, what does that look like from your perspective? Well, when you talk about horrific events like the mosque shooting in New Zealand, you can see how faith groups of all stripes and creeds rise up in in the aftermath and say, we want to help you out. We want to be there for you. And we want to help bring this community back together and and heal. And yet those are the types of events that can actually trigger a a pretty negative consequence, which is that government leaders become even more nervous about religion, worried about religiously motivated violence. And so as I've been writing about religious freedom this year, there's been this real um, focus on the need for protecting religious freedom even in scary moments, to say, if you want to have that healing influence on the ground, you need to make sure that faith groups can function the way they want to and hope to at, at all times. Yeah, uh, that, was, that was one of the interesting uh, things from one of the panel discussions there in Tokyo. Uh, you had the three former prime ministers of uh, New Zealand, Ireland, and the UK, mm-hmm. and uh, they all kind of mentioned that, yeah, some some within governments, you know, are are still a little leery of of faith groups and what they can do. How how do you see that? Well, it's amazing to me just how often in interviews uh, the 9-11 terrorist attacks come up. Um, I say amazing not because they're not this important, significant historical moment, but that now we are 18 years removed from that. And it's just it's it's wild to think how how they loom so large in the minds of government leaders to this day. And there's this understanding that people need to take religion seriously and to engage with it, but also this let's keep it at an arm's Arms length length. because we don't want to make um, angry people around the world even angrier. And so there's this real tension and and it's sort of frustrating from maybe you and my perspective that's like you can objectively say, okay, religion is important, but then when it's you having to make the decision to partner with faith groups, government leaders often get scared. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that uh, came out, this uh, great quote from uh, Elder Garrett W. Gong, excuse me, of the uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was one of the, the keynote speakers there. And uh, he made an interesting statement. They were talking about all of these different goals and ways that faith groups are are really best suited to provide on the ground. They can they can staff up quickly with volunteers. They stay mm-hmm. so they're in the community for the long haul. Um, but then he said uh, the recommendation the recommendation concluded that in order for religious communities to play such a vital role, that national and global policies with Firm protections for freedom of religion or belief are essential. Mm -hmm. Respond to that. Well, we, you and I, have spoken a bit before about, in the American context, what type of religious freedom uh, protections need to be in place. And they can come up in unexpected ways. And it relates to Elder Gong's comments. If you're going to allow a faith group or welcome a faith group to have something like a soup kitchen on their grounds or to host ballot boxes at the election or to have shelter places in the midst of a natural disaster, you have to be prepared for the consequence 
that that is still a sacred site. It's still a house of worship. They're going to have certain beliefs about perhaps the LGBT community or even something simpler about, um, I mean, you don't want to say, go ahead and proselytize to anyone who walks in the door, but you want to ensure that by offering that community service, there isn't some penalty that's like, oh, you can't live by your beliefs anymore. Sorry. And I think that's sort of the moment we're at here in 2019 is there's this tension with we need to make sure anyone who walks through the door is treated fairly, but we also need to make sure we're not kicking faith groups out of the marketplace. Yeah, and I think that's an important part of of faith under fire. Uh, It's not just the the attacks. Uh, Sometimes it is that discrimination. Sometimes it is the uh, lack of protections in the law. A lot of the cases that we're seeing uh, come up before the Supreme Court are kind of centered in, in that space of where does that religious belief begin and end? Uh, do, do we have to leave it at the front door or can we actually take it into the public square? And perhaps I should admit that I have gone directly into the weeds because if you think <laughs> about other countries, it really is a more basic matter of are we allowing faith groups to do what they do best? Are we allowing them to help? Because uh, there are countries that won't give you a religious visa, for example, to come and even do sort of service projects. Right. There's large international operations um, solving things like hunger that just have to walk away from certain countries because of the tensions um, with an overly dominant faith or with a secular government. And so let's maybe start with that and then we can get into these Supreme Court cases. Yeah. And I do think it's interesting, too. Another thing that uh, that was pointed out over and over again in, in Tokyo at the uh, Interfaith Forum uh, there ahead of the G20 Economic Summit uh, is the fact that that well over 80% of the people around the mm-hmm. world do identify themselves with a faith or a religious belief. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's wild when I hear that statistic is that, as I just reported in a profile of America's Religious Freedom Ambassador, about 84% of the world's population lives in a religiously restrictive environment. Um, so it, it sort of gives gonna, me goosebumps I'm gonna, I'm gonna thinking about that. I'm going to interrupt you and make you say that one more time. So so while over 80% of the world's population does identify with a faith or a faith group. 84% of the world's population lives in a religiously restrictive environment. Wow. That is, uh, I think that's hard for a lot of us to, to wrap our head around, especially here in the United States where we feel like, oh, well, we, we have, you know. Yeah, what we're saying we're fighting over these tiny details. We're sort of inches from the finish line and just figuring it out. Yeah. Well, there's there's so much uh, so much more to come uh, in this space. Uh, we've got just a, one one minute left here. And uh, it just give me some some sense again, coming out of the, the Tokyo experience, uh, keeping your I know you always have one eye on the Supreme Court with what's going on there. Uh, as you look at faith under fire, uh, what do you what do you hope to see in the in the coming uh, weeks and months? I hope we in America can turn our eyes to sort of the international context. Um, it's easy to get burnt out on these religious liberty discussions, though. Please read my stories, of course. <laughs> but it's it's important to keep remembering that what really matters here is protecting everyday people and allowing them to sort of believe what they want to believe and and act according to their religious beliefs. Okay, fantastic, uh, Kelsey Dallas from the Deseret News. Everyone can follow you. At Kelsey underscore Dallas or on the Deseret News site on our in-depth section. All right. Fantastic. She has great work there on uh, religious liberty and uh, and a host of other things relating to the uh, Supreme Court. So uh, stay tuned with uh, Kelsey Dallas for more on that. And stay with KSL News Radio uh, throughout the rest of this week. Faith Under Fire, uh, part of an ABC tag team uh, partnership there. Uh, again, really important stuff for us to to think through and address, again, both in terms of making sure that people do have that freedom to uh, to worship. Uh, but also making sure they're free to bring their whole self 
uh, into the public square. Really interesting things, and I appreciate Kelsey joining us today and also our uh, friends from New Zealand sharing their perspective from inside the mosque uh, from back in March. All right, uh, J-Mac, the fearless one, is up next, as always, so don't go anywhere. Uh, But that is going to wrap it up for us today. On a Tuesday, thanks for joining us here on KSL News Radio Inside Sources. I am Boyd Matheson, the opinion editor at the Deseret News. Always great to be with you. And as you go out in the world today, make sure you see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and as always, do something that makes a difference. Have a great rest of your day.